0: Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to
1: issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Welcome, and thank you for joining us for ASHP Wellness Wednesday podcast. My name is Brittany Toshane, and I'm here with Joe Marciano, and we will be your co-hosts today for the ASHP podcast. Just to start off, we wanted to introduce ourselves. Joe, do you mind telling the audience a little bit about yourself?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So as Brittany mentioned, my name is Joe Marciano and I'm currently a PGY2 in internal medicine and academia with the University Hospital's Geauga Medical Center and Northeast Ohio Medical University near Cleveland, Ohio. And currently I'm uh, serving as the chair for the ASHP New Practitioners Forum Resident Advancement Advisory Group. Uh, Brittany, you are also a new practitioner, is that right?
1: Yes, I am. I just finished up my PGY2 in internal medicine last year, and I'm now a clinical pharmacist with Christiana Care in Delaware. I am also the NPF Executive Committee Liaison for RAG this year. One of the focuses for RAG this year has been wellness and well-being, so I know I'm very excited here to discuss more about financial wellness, especially with our podcast here today, which is specifically a forum where members can listen and share successful strategies on wellness and resilience. In particular, I'm very excited about today's topic on personal financial well-being and our guest speaker, Dr. Bavak Shah. I don't know about you, Joe, but as a new practitioner, this is definitely an area I wish we knew more about. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, I have felt the same way with respect to wanting to know more information about financial well-being. Uh, And so I'm so, so excited for this podcast today. But don't worry, I feel like a lot of our fellow new practitioners are also interested in this topic. So let's dive right in. I'm so excited to speak with our guest speaker, Bavik, today. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, Bavik.
2: Hi, Joe and Brittany. Thanks for having me today on uh, the podcast. Yes, absolutely. And before
0: we really start talking about the content for today, could you please just introduce yourself briefly to
2: our audience? Sure. Uh, I am a faculty member at the Jefferson College of Pharmacy in Philadelphia. I did my PGY-1 and PGY-2 training at Jefferson uh, University Hospital. My background is in infectious diseases. Uh, But I actually had the pleasure of teaching and precepting Brittany uh, a couple of years ago. So the adage of pharmacy being a small world is uh, definitely true. So I'm happy that our paths crossed uh, again.
1: I agree, Bhavik. Thanks for joining us here today. I'm excited. We are very happy to chat with you today. We were just talking about how personal finances is an important topic for many new practitioners. We just recently hosted a Twitter survey and chat centered around personal finances, on the ASHP NPF Twitter account and had a very positive turnout. We also wanted to encourage our listeners to please follow the NPF Twitter account. It's great to receive all sorts of updates on the new practitioners forum, and we would highly recommend it. We were able to pull our new practitioners on different areas of personal finance that they're most interested in, and some even submitted thoughtful questions that they had for us. Today, we're going to start off with one of the most requested topics, which is student loans. But before we jump into this question specifically, we want to hear more about your background and how you got into personal finances, please.
2: Sure. Yeah, uh, I, I believe my journey to personal finance has is probably similar to many in the audience. I had very limited education from my parents. I didn't have any sort of education uh, in my high school or college or pharmacy school related to student loans or personal finance. So I really was sort of self taught over the years and through experience really, and sometimes experience is the best teacher. And I made some mistakes along the way. I've had some bad experiences with some professionals when I did seek out professional advice. So, you know, over the past couple of years, I've read a lot of financial books, listened to a ton of podcasts. And now I feel like I'm in a place where I have a good understanding of things. I'm not an expert by any means, but I feel like I have a, a good understanding. And so I have incorporated it into my apps and now I, I have an elective course on it. And so, you know, I want to bridge that gap of personal finance education for young professionals because I think there is a gap because formal education is very limited. I should say that, you know, I am not a certified financial planner. I'm not a tax attorney or an accountant. So, you know, this is just all sort of self-taught, uh, but I would advise... Uh, anyone who's listening to definitely, you know, use this as educational uh, information and to seek out and do your own due diligence uh, by speaking with with your own accountant or your own attorney or your own financial advisor before, you know, doing and taking any action.
0: Thank you so much, Bavik, for that information already. That experience really, really resonates, at least with me, specifically about the limited amount of information with respect to tackling financial wellness and maintaining financial wellness that I feel like I had heading into college, even beginning undergrad and in professional school as well. And so to hear that you are now teaching the experiences that you have had and doing so on Appy and by teaching in a whole and starting and teaching in a whole elective course related to finances is wonderful. And I'm I'm so so excited to get the chance to pick your brain about this. So I guess to start focusing more on your journey, what was your experience like then with student loans?
2: Yeah, my experience with student loans is probably very similar again to the average pharmacy student. I had to finance my entire undergrad and graduate schooling uh, with student loans. Um, my family, we came from humble means, and 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 so, so I had I graduated about eighty thousand dollars of student loans back in two thousand eight, which, if you adjust for inflation, that's a little bit north of one hundred and ten thousand. And when I graduated, I really didn't have a plan, and that was my biggest mistake. I, I sort of put my hand in the stand and just sort of didn't really know what the, the terminology was, what the best payment plans were, what the best strategy would be. And so uh, I didn't manage to pay them off. I paid them off early, but I really didn't have a plan. And and I think that's probably the biggest mistake that I made because you know there were missed opportunities along the way that I could have taken advantage of.
0: Yeah. As someone who is currently in loan repayment and residency, I absolutely understand the appeal or, you know, how easily it can be to put things off like that. And I feel like for me, at least at first, part of that desire was rooted in having almost a fear of the unknown. So I really appreciate this information about student loans so that we, the listeners, the new practitioners who find ourselves in this situation can can have the chance to, you know, take our heads out of the sand if that's if that's where we find ourselves, which to an extent, I, I do feel that way, or at least definitely did in the past. And so based on your experiences, then, I feel like the most difficult step can sometimes be that first one. So where would you suggest that students or recent graduates begin when they're thinking about student loans?
2: Yeah, I, I would say, you know, having a plan is the, the very first thing you need to do. And the way you do that is sort of Kind of like what you what you're doing is listening to this podcast is sort of figure out what your options are, and learn about them, and then sort of strategize as what's the best route for you. Student loan in uh, graduates uh, with student loans, you have a lot of options, and so you want to see what is the right one for you. And really, the questions you have to ask yourself is, you know, what kind of employer do you have, or you see yourself working for. What kind of income do you have? What's your loan balance, your loan to income ratio, whether you're married or single, and if your spouse has loans too. Uh, I think really the first question you have to ask yourself is whether you're not going to pursue public service loan forgiveness. Uh, this is where you need to work full time for the right kind of employer, like a nonprofit organization, and have the right kind of loans, usually direct loans. And for the right amount of duration, and that's 120 monthly on-time payments, so that's over the course of 10 years. And you need to be on the right kind of payment plan, and that's an income-driven repayment. If, if you meet all these criteria, after 10 years, you apply for and you'll achieve public service loan forgiveness, where your remaining loan balance will be forgiven, tax-free. If you know you are or you're not going to be working for a nonprofit for the next 10 years, then that is something that you have to ask yourself because that would make the decision whether you're going to do public service loan forgiveness easy. One quick way you could tell that if you work for a nonprofit is you ask your HR, are you a a nonprofit organization? And it's a specific IRS type of organization. It has to be a, a 501c3, which, you know, it can be very Although that might be just jargon to a lot of listeners. And so a quick way to know is to figure out what kind of um, retirement plan does your organization offer? If it's a 401k, that is going to be a for-profit organization. And that means that your employer is ineligible for you to then pursue public service loan forgiveness with that employer. But if your employer offers a 403b plan, then that means that's a non organization. Government agencies count, too. So let's say if you work for the VA or a state government, that counts as well. And you have to work full time over the course of 10 years. And But the thing is, the full time is not necessarily 40 hours. It's th- at least 30 hours or whatever your employer considers a FTE, whichever is greater. So if your employer considers an FTE to be 40 hours, then it's 40 hours. But sometimes some employers consider FTE at 35 hours. So it really just depends. If you are working part-time for multiple employers, you can add up those hours as long as all of your employers are non- non-profits, they you are still eligible. And the 120 payments don't necessarily have to be consecutive either. When they are consecutive, that means you'll have the fastest uh, forgiveness achieved, uh, but they can also be non-consecutive if you need it to be. And then we're gonna be talking about the different payment plans. But to maximize the amount that's forgiven, you want to compare these payment plans, uh, such as income-based repayment, that's known as IBR, pay-as-you-earn, which is pay, revised pay-as-you-earn, so otherwise known as repay. Uh, With any of these repayment plans, the size of your monthly payment is not tied to your interest rate or the principal that you owe that would otherwise be normally used to figure out what your standard Monthly payment would be with a standard 10-year repayment plan. With these income-driven repayment options, it's going to be based solely on your income and your family size. And so a lot of times your monthly amount that you owe on the IDRs are going to be much smaller than your uh, standard monthly payment plan on the 10-year plan. And so whatever you pay monthly, it's first going to go to uh, interest. And then the principal the the base amount that was taken out when you were in school, and so there might be a situation where your loan balance never goes down and actually might even go up because your monthly payment is so low that you're not you're covering the interest or some of the interest, but uh, you're not even touching the principal um, with repay though the government the way the program is set up is that uh, half of the interest that you owe in that month, it gets subsidized by the government. So in a way, it actually reduces your interest rate.
0: I appreciate that that overview so far of that initial possible strategy of loan repayment, that being the public service loan forgiveness or PSLF. And so just to dig into that a little bit more, it sounds like using one of these income-driven repayment plans is of course tied with pursuing PSLF. But I think that figuring out differences among different kinds of repayment plans can be a huge, huge snag point with respect to feeling like you have a command for this kind of material with the student loans. So Bava, could you maybe talk more about the differences just within those three kinds of income-driven repayment plans that you had mentioned?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's some similarities across them, but there's some Important differences also and so depending upon your situation, you sort of need to figure out what's right for you. What's nice about these payment plans or may, maybe not nice uh, is again it's all individual specific is that you can toggle amongst them every year uh, depending on if your situation changes uh, but there's some caveats along with that. but generally speaking the IBR we'll start with there. The monthly payment for the IBR is going to be 10% of your discretionary income. And this discretionary income is going to be based on your income and your family size. And the government has a formula as to what they use to do that. And so your monthly payment is going to be uh, 10% of that. And the maximum of that is, is whatever the standard 10-year monthly payment would have been. Pay and repay is very also similar in that. It's 10% of your discretionary income. Both IBR and pay are maxed to the standard 10-year payment plan, but repay is not. So that's one sort of strike against repay is that if you are potentially very high income or a very high income couple, repay may not make sense for you. Pay uh, has some additional criteria that need to be met, you need to be a new borrower after October 2007, which I would imagine many or most of your listeners, especially in the new practitioner's forum, you know, you would have no problem clearing this hurdle. And you need to have had a direct loan issued after October 1 or 2011. A important distinction to be made is with repay. Uh, and something that you have to ask yourself in your life situation is whether you are married or not. Because with repay, your spouse's income counts towards that income that we talked about earlier that's used to determine your monthly payment on your loans. And so that can potentially raise your monthly payment amount. And it also needs to be taken into consideration what your spouse's loans are uh, and what they owe. With repay, whether you fire taxes uh, jointly or separately, it doesn't matter. Both of your incomes count in the calculation for both you and your spouse. What's nice about pay, I'm sorry, what's, yeah, with pay and IBR is that you can then decide, uh, you could still be able to file separately in your federal income taxes, and that will lower, potentially lower your monthly payment. And so there's a lot of nuance here that we know we can't really get into in the podcast because everyone's situation is different but you know the decision to to file your taxes as married filing separately versus married filing jointly it also depends on your 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 income your spouse's income the size of your loan balance the size of their loan balance this is something that might require professional help because you want to make sure you're using the right plan and that your overall out of pocket costs are minimized and so there's a whole segment of professionals that are, there's a, a certification that you uh, I would uh, advise listeners to look into is finding what's known as a Certified Student Loan Professional or Student Loan Planner, uh, CSLP. You could uh, look that up and find ones in your area. And this is a good resource because they'll, they can sit down with, uh, and you could work with them to figure out what your own situation is and to figure out, what the most optimal filing status would be in payment plan to so, uh, have, you know, the least amount of federal income taxes, as well as the least amount of student loan payments.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate that, you know, initial level of difference between those different income-driven repayment plans. You know, what you had mentioned with respect to having some of the plans be able to have that maximum discretionary income limit with respect to what your monthly payments are and how repay doesn't seem to have that, if I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly. But really just emphasizing how at the end of the day, making sure to get some professional advice, maybe with that CSLP in order to determine what is the best way to file taxes and then what is the best way to, of course, approach which repayment plan you decide. I think that's all really great advice for me, for, for you know, our listeners to hear. Um, so thank you. I guess what the next step then is—is is where my mind goes—is well, what if somebody is pursuing public service loan forgiveness or PSLF, or what if someone is not pursuing that? What what would be the main considerations, or, or do you have any suggestions with respect to what someone should consider in either
2: of those arms? Sure, absolutely. So if you're if you if you decide and upfront you knowing you aren't to pursue public service loan forgiveness, one of the first things you need to do is fill out a employer certification form initially, as well as annually thereafter, to make sure your loans uh, move over to FedLoan as a servicer, because you know you may have other servicers, uh, but FedLoan is the only one that handles public service loan forgiveness. So when you fill it out initially, uh, it will move it over. And this is the form that's available on studentaid.gov. You can fill it out online. And your employer will certify that you were indeed an employee and, whether, and you're, whether you're full-time status or part-time status and how many hours that you worked, And they would indicate that they were a nonprofit. If you're not pursuing public service loan forgiveness, let's say you, you know you're going to be working for a for-profit chain, a community pharmacy, or a, you're an industry, you can still be on an income driven plan. Because the loans are still forgivable after 20 to 25 years, depending upon the type of loan that you have, undergrad versus grad, and whether you choose pay, repay, or IBR. But typically this forgiveness, this non-public service loan forgiveness, is going to be taxable down the road with the stimulus plans that were signed into law the most recent one in in March of 2021 any loan forgiveness is tax free whether it's public service loan forgiveness or not the american rescue plan that's only through 2025 there's some talk that in and that this might be extended but that that isn't law yet so you know if you are going to be pursuing this taxable non this taxable forgiveness 20, 25 years into the future. What you do need to include as part of your planning process is to make sure you're saving money in the side to pay for that tax bomb that's going to explode, quote unquote, in the future. Because remember, public service loan forgiveness is tax-free, but uh, non-public service loan forgiveness is taxable. If, you're, if you know you're not doing public service loan forgiveness, what you can consider is refinancing with a private lender which we'll talk more about later. One thing I wouldn't wanna remind uh, audience members is that if, uh, regardless whether you're doing public service loan forgiveness or that textbook forgiveness, it's not automatic. It doesn't happen. It's not automatically granted after 10 years or after 20 years or 25 years. Even if you met all the criteria, you still need to apply for that forgiveness after those 10 or 20, 25 years. And if you're doing public service loan forgiveness, an important key point to be made is that at the time that the forgiveness is given, you still need to be with a non a nonprofit organization. And so, just don't think after ten years you could then change employers because you met all the criteria. You want to make sure you get that letter confirmation letter that your lo- loans were f- totally forgiven. And so, and then lastly, you know, there's a lot of paperwork here. So just just re- reminding the audience. Annually fill out your certification of income and choosing the payment plan, as well as your employer certification form, because this will help you track your number of payments to make sure you're on on pace to hit the 120 if you're doing public service loan forgiveness, or if you're on track for the 20 25 years. Because if there's a discrepancy, you could address it more quickly versus waiting 10 years down the road and then sort of backtracking to sort of resolve any payments that did not count towards your 120. The goal is to, you know, pay the least amount if you're pursuing public service loan forgiveness.
0: I absolutely appreciate all of that information so far, uh, especially with respect to those step-by-step items to consider if you're pursuing PSLF, uh, which I know is something that we might talk about a little bit later as well. But, you know, already, you know, this is a lot of information. So I was wondering, Bobik, do you have any resources or suggestions for our listeners to perhaps use some resources to help better evaluate their situation or things that you've come across that are helpful?
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's there's so many options. It's so easy to get overwhelmed and, and, and lost. There's a lot of good resources out there. You could always go to studentaid.gov and use their calculators and you could input your data. Or you could log in and, and they could pull your data and, and they, you know, you could, they, they can tell you what the uh, best payment plan is depending on what your goals are. But the one I like the best is uh, visiting studentloanplanner.com. Uh, there's a calculator there where you can input your data as well as your spouse's. This includes your incomes, your student loan balances, your interest rates, and whether or not you're pursuing public service loan forgiveness. And this will give you a a summary table that will give you a good idea of what payment plan will result in the lowest out-of-pocket monthly expenses or the lowest overall paid. What's nice about these uh, with Student Loan Planner is that it will give you all the information in today's dollars they adjust for inflation Uh, and so you can do an apples to apples comparison uh, between whether you're going to be refinancing and you can enter your the refinancing rate that you got Um, and so you could compare different options that you know span 10 years or 20 years or 25 years in today's dollars and then you could sort of figure out what the cheapest strategy is for you
1: i agree this is a great resource i took some time to get familiar with the calculator myself and it is very user-friendly they walk you step-by-step, step, and I am a very visual learner, so I appreciated the way the calculator organizes the results in the chart for you. This is definitely something I wish I knew about when I graduated, so thank you for sharing this with our audience.
0: Yeah, I, I appreciate it as well. And you know, just thinking about everything that we've discussed so far, there is clearly, again, you know, so much to consider with respect to student loan forgiveness. I think being really deliberate about what you are planning for, whether that be standard repayment, the public service loan forgiveness that extended taxable forgiveness or other options is definitely very critical that intentionality and so i think that's a, focusing a little bit more on pslf i i know that there have been some headlines circulating recently that seem to at, at the very least make it known that there could be some concerns about this repayment strategy. So, Bavik, I I would like to get your thoughts on what is the risk of relying on PSLF? Will PSLF go away? You know, some of some headlines are saying that there was a 99% rejection rate. Is that something that you think is is accurate or not so much? And and I would just like to get your overall thoughts then on that line of inquiry.
2: Yeah, I saw that rejection uh, headline a couple of years ago when you know individuals were first eligible to apply for public service loan forgiveness and what the the, the Department of Ed and the uh, and Fed loan how they were servicing it and so you know it, it was in, it was reported in Forbes and so if you pull the article and you dig a little bit deeper the, you could find out what the reasons for rejection were and so. of of those who were rejected did not have 120 payments yet. 24% of of the rejected individuals didn't have complete applications. 15% had ineligible loans to begin with. Remember, it has to be a direct loan. And 4% had the wrong type of employer. So remember, you had to have a nonprofit organization or a government agency or they were employed before 2007. So your employment before 2007 doesn't count before the, when the program was created. So this was a t- accounting for pretty much all of the reasons why it, individuals were rejected. And so to me, that means people were rejected because they didn't follow the directions. So public service loan forgiveness has a very specific criteria, very specific check boxes that need to be met. And so, this is why I agree with you, Joe, is that you need to uh, have to have intentionality up front to know that this is what you're going to do and do everything prospectively. So you need to make sure you're certifying your nonprofit employer prospectively rather than retrospectively. So you can make sure you're on pace for that, your progress towards 120 payments. This way, you know, again, if there were issues with the them counting to 120, you can address it before the 10 years come up. And what I will also encourage listeners to do is, you know, keep detailed records of every employer certification form that you submit online, every income certification form that you submit annually, every monthly payment that you do. Uh, You may even, I would also consider uh, advising individuals to make, put things on autopay because that way you know it's going to be paid on time because only on-time payments count. And so... So late payments won't count, even if you made them. So another benefit for auto pay is that it saves you a quarter percent on your interest. So, you know, if you're pursuing public service loan forgiveness, that doesn't really matter because it's everything's going to be forgiven. But if you're if you're pursuing that taxable forgiveness, you know, every little bit helps to lower the amount that is going to be added to your interest. To your question about, you know, do I think it's going to go away? Public service loan forgiveness was created by Congress and therefore it can be changed at any point in time in Congress. So that caveat always exists. But I would challenge uh, individuals to find an example in where a program or benefit was created and shrunk over time. If anything, usually it gets reinforced or expanded. So, and with student loan forgiveness, if there is going to be a change, I think what would happen is that uh, it would apply to new borrowers and those who have existing loans would be grandfathered in. And I don't think there's going to be any change to public service loan forgiveness in, in the in the negative direction because it'd be such political blowblock uh, if the rules are changed in the middle of the game. Because look at who has student loans. According to Experian, which is one of the credit uh, reporting bureaus, Gen X has the largest average student loan balance. But after Gen X, it's baby boomers, not millennials. Millennials don't have the largest student loan balance. It's Gen Xers and baby boomers. Baby boomers probably have it because they took out loans for their children and or grandchildren. And third place are millennials. So what I'm trying to say is that this is not a millennial problem. This is an American problem. So there's a wide swath of voters who would be affected if, public service loan forgiveness was modified uh, to shrink down who's eligible. Because politicians like to keep their jobs. So I wouldn't necessarily be worried about it being taken away. Uh, but you're right that, you know, individuals need to be very intentional and keep up with the the, the news to see w- what's happening.
0: Yeah, I, I think those are some good considerations. And I think at the end of the day, it just highlights again how important it is for our listeners to just make sure that they're getting that advice from the appropriate parties following up, if possible, with a financial planner uh, with a CSLP in order to figure out what the best plan is for them individually. But this information is definitely something that that is helpful to be aware of. But that said, it sounds like you know there's still quite a bit of uncertainty. If, if you want to call it that, surrounding the PSLF process, as well as student loans as a whole, especially at this time. And so I think that that leads well into the next thing that I wanted to ask you about, Bavik, which is how has the COVID-19 pandemic uh, affected student loan planning? What sorts of changes have you seen, have you been made aware of with respect to how the pandemic might affect individual student loan situations?
2: Yeah, so I think the, the pandemic with the executive actions that were done by President Trump and President Biden with setting interest rates at 0% and putting everybody, all student uh, borrowers uh, on automatic forbearance, essentially pausing student loans. I think this has created options. So if you're, if you're pursuing public service loan forgiveness, as long as you are working for a nonprofit employer full-time, your monthly payments are zero, but they still those months still count towards your 120 payments. So if I was pursuing, if I know I'm pursuing public service loan forgiveness, I would not be paying uh, during this time uh, when I have a zero percent interest rate and a zero percent monthly balance on automatic forbearance, because your goal should be to maximize the autom- uh the amount that gets forgiven. For those who are not pursuing public service loan forgiveness. You could take this opportunity to then pay uh, more. uh, Your monthly payment goes to principal. And so you can pay your monthly payments as you have been, because all of it's going to go to principal, assuming that you've been caught up and your interest is up to date. And so you could pay off your loan balance faster, saving you interest in the long run. What you can consider is saving money in a side account while the, the, 0% while loans are on 0% interest. And what this means is that when they're at 0%, it doesn't matter where you pay it monthly or all in a lump sum. So I would suggest listeners consider putting it into a side account and see what happens with the 0% interest rate. Because right now that's through September 30th. And there, there might be a chance that that 0% gets extended further. There might be a chance that there might be a $10,000 forgiveness or potentially 50,000. Who knows uh, if that's going to happen. But with 0%, you can give yourself the option of saving it on the side. And then if it gets forgiven, then great. You have this side money that you can use for other purposes. Um, You just give yourself options by having this side account. But I would also recommend that listeners take a a, a view of the rest of their financial picture during this opportunity. And and it really is an opportunity of having 0% interest and automatic forbearance. So you can plan and give yourself and put yourself in the best financial uh, footing. Is your emergency fund up to coming along and is it at goal? Whether you you know whether you want to have three months of expenses or six months of expenses in in a high dose savings account, uh, you can. Uh, if you have credit card debt, I would definitely pay that off preferentially over putting money towards a zero percent student loan at this time. Because your credit card debt, that interest rate, it's going to be way higher. The average credit card debt interest rate is about 16 17%. So, you know, you want to take the, this opportunity to pay off credit card debt, build those good habits of not getting into credit card debt using budgeting apps. Uh, so, so, you know, I, I do think listeners should definitely use this as a, as a planning opportunity to make sure that, you know, it makes sense in the big, big overall picture.
0: Yeah, I think that that is a really important consideration with respect to understanding the 0% interest rate and how it affects your student loan picture so that you can use this unique time as a way to just optimize your own financial goals and optimize the way in which you're choosing to, to go about your student loan repayment strategy. That said, Bhavik, I've heard of some other administrative-related actions that might affects the way in which some individuals go about paying their student loans, particularly related to employer engagement. Uh, is that something that you'd be able to talk a little bit more about as well?
2: Yeah. So the one of the other things that came out of the different stimulus plans that like went into law in 2020 with the CARES Act and then the stimulus that was signed in December 2020, they now allow employers to pay up to towards employee student loans. And the benefit of this is that employers can save on taxes and employees as well. And so this is something that uh, is available through 2025. And so I would ask students to see how, if and how their HRs, their organizations are implementing this and if they're offering this. Because this might be a way for you to, because if you're going to be having to pay anyway your student loans, this is a way you could save on federal income taxes. So if you, for example, uh, you know, a pharmacist, once you are out of residency, there's a good chance you might be in the 22 or 24% marginal tax bracket. And if you take full advantage of this 5250 amount, you could save yourself $1,000 in federal income taxes for an expense that you would have to be paying anyway. So this is just another way of, uh, of taking advantage uh, and being aware of of a benefit that, you know, is relative, it's very new. Uh, you know, we have, you might have employed, uh, individuals may be aware of having flexible savings accounts for having, you know, buying medications and paying for co-pays with tax-free dollars. This is a, a similar concept. So you could you could take advantage of that to pay your student loans. And each AR, HRs may, organizations might, Pay it for you, or they might reimburse you for you uh, for your payments, But you know, this is a benefit that you definitely want to look into with your organizations. And with my organization, I haven't seen them implement it yet. But I know I reached out to them because I I, I nerd out. <laughs> I've asked them how they are implementing all the different CARES Act and stimulus plan uh, benefits because uh, there's some other benefits, too, for like child care, uh, which is what I care about, because that's applicable to me. They said that they're reviewing everything and they're going to be reaching out and letting employees know soon because it was signed into law in March. And so this is something that, you know, listeners should definitely be uh, on the lookout for.
0: Yeah, that is really interesting. So just to make sure I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is that there is a possibility that your employer, instead of Paying you this amount up to the five thousand two hundred fifty dollars will instead take up to that amount and directly use that to pay off some of your student loans. And the advantage then is that if you're going to use that money for student loans anyway, well, this way it's not taxed because it's not classified as income. Um, is that? Am I? I'm just wanting to make sure I'm hearing you yeah, correctly. Yeah,
2: yeah. So I mean, the 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 spirit of what you're saying is correct. Yeah. The how mechanically how that would happen. It, you know, employees may have to elect to set aside fifty two fifty, or up to fifty two fifty, into a, like a side account, and then that will be used to pay for it. Whether you get like a debit card and pay towards your loans, or you get you seek um, like a reimbursement. But the end of the day, yeah, employees will be able to designate a portion of their salary, uh, up to this amount of fifty two fifty, and have it be tax free, federal income tax free. Awesome. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate that. So
0: that's it. I know I asked you a little bit about this earlier with respect to resources you'd recommend, um, but was there, you know, now that we've discussed a little bit more of information pertaining to student loans, are there any other resources that you'd like to spotlight or things that you've found helpful with respect to just student loan managements in general or other helpful resources?
2: Yeah, so I mentioned that Student Loan Planner, and that, that's the best calculator I've, I have seen, because uh, there's also Student Loan Hero, which has its own calculator. I mentioned studentaid.gov, which is the f- official government resource, and you could check there. And I would advise individuals to check different calculators and see you know, if you're drawing the same conclusions, they should confront one another. There are some good resources for general personal finance education, and, and there's two blogs that dedicate a portion of it towards student loan management. The, the two blogs I like are Your Financial Pharmacist. This is a blog that's run by two pharmacists, as well as a certified financial planner, the team of three individuals. They have their podcast, they have a blog that is helpful. Uh, but the resource that I find myself most using is White Code Investor. This is a one uh, by an emergency medicine physician out of Salt Lake City. He has a blog, a podcast, and he targets physicians, but he also also targets other high income, high debt individuals, such as other healthcare uh, workers, lawyers, accountants, etc. So there's a section on his website towards uh, student loan management, but you know there's uh, other resources there too about retirement savings and investing. And he's broken it down by beginner, intermediate, and advanced. So you could work your way through WCI uh, as a good resource.
0: Yeah, I think it is really reassuring to learn of how there are so many helpful resources out there uh, for our listeners to explore with respect to sorting out student loans, especially when there are so many different complicated aspects that I feel as though we've, we've touched a little bit on already today.
1: I agree that these resources will be very helpful to our audience. In addition to the resources that Bobic highlighted, I know that some schools offer access to a professional financial planner for free to their alumni. So I would encourage our listeners to see their school offers this as a resource because it is also great to have access to someone live in person.
0: Yes, that is a great point, Brittany. Thank you so much for sharing. And so next, I I think this has got me thinking about one topic that I know is very confusing at least for a lot of new graduates i think and so bavik we hinted at this earlier but could you just touch on your impression of the basic differences and main points of consolidation of student loans and how that differs from refinancing student loans
2: yeah so this is the concept that i had difficulty understanding uh, in the beginning when i graduated because i used these and i interpreted them as being interchangeable but they're not interchangeable. They have very important distinctions. So I can understand why you know, if, uh, folks can find this confusing. So consolidation, what it does is that you can combine your federal loans into one larger loan and it becomes a, a weighted average. That, that interest rate gets rounded up to the nearest 8%. It's free to consolidate. You apply for it on studentaid.gov. And it takes about 30 minutes to do. And listeners may want to consider consolidating if they're pursuing public service loan forgiveness because only certain types of loans are eligible for public service loan forgiveness, specifically direct loans. Those direct loans can be subsidized, unsubsidized, graduate. As long as it has the word direct in it, it counts for public service loan forgiveness. If you do not have a direct loan or if you have like a Stafford loan or some other kind of loan, Perkins or whatever, and you want to make it eligible for public service loan forgiveness, then you can consolidate all those loans into a, into a new loan, a new direct loan, and then that will be uh, then eligible. Uh, the, the, another nice thing about consolidating is that you will have one large loan to keep track of 120 payments on versus 120 payments of a bunch of small loans. But there is a huge, huge caveat with consolidating and and it's important for listeners to be aware of this. And that is, if you consolidate, uh, it resets your clock towards your public service loan forgiveness towards that 10 year countdown or your 20 or 25 year countdown if you're doing taxable forgiveness. So if you're going to consolidate, you really want to do that upfront uh, when you graduate. Because, you know, if you do it a couple of years into your public service loan forgiveness pursuit and you then consolidate it, all that time that you've done doesn't count anymore. And you have to basically your clocks reset to zero and then you have to do wait another 10 years. So in the end, you're going to be paying more than you had to because uh, you you kick that forgiveness can down the road by that much.
0: Thank you so much. Um, that is a really important, I think a summary uh, or at least some information pertaining to the pros cons of consolidation. Uh, How about refinancing? When might that apply or when might that be something that our listeners could consider?
2: Sure. Absolutely. So, you know, listeners, there's a good chance that many of your listeners might have private loans and already when they graduated. So you can refinance private loans as often as you want. Uh, You can also refinance your federal loans, But if you were to refinance your federal loans, uh, the decision, this decision uh, to refinance it with a private lender should require some serious thought. Because once you refinance away from the federal government into a private loan, you lose some of the benefits that come with federal loans. You lose your ability to have those payment flexibility options of the income driven repayment. You lose the eligibility for public loan forgiveness, whether it's public service loan forgiveness or that taxable forgiveness. Um, The benefit of refinancing is that you can get really good uh, interest rates. Uh, The interest rates of private lenders is much better than what the federal government is offering. So it really depends on your individual uh, situation. And so, you know, if if individuals uh, know that they're not pursuing public service loan forgiveness, and their, their loan balance is less than about 1.5 times their uh, income. It might make sense in the long run to refinance because you'll get a better rate and then you'll be paying less out of pocket. If you, when you decide to refinance with a private company, I would encourage listeners to, to definitely shop around for interest rates, especially the low interest rates that we have now, you know, and generationally speaking, they're the lowest that they have been in, in decades. And so there's a bunch of good lenders out there that you can see, well, who's going to give you the best terms that make sense for you? There's SoFi, there's Earnest, there's LendKey, there's Laurel Road, Citizens Bank, Credible, Alphi, Splash, Common Bond. There's all these providers that are providing student loan refinancing. And so, you know, you want to make sure you shop around, look at what kind of terms they have, how long it would be, what the monthly payment is, and what makes most sense for you. You know, do you want to have the lowest monthly payment option? Do you want to have the lowest total on a pocket for the life of the loan? You know, you want to see what's out there. For to even get the best rates, you might have to have a really good credit score. And for some lenders, there's a minimum. So again, shop around. Uh, A lot of them actually pay you money back for refinancing with them. So they will offer you promotional cash back. So again, take a look at these and see which one makes sense for you. And again, I shall mention to the audience that I have no financial interest in any of these. I don't get a kickback. I don't get anything (laughs) with uh, these private lenders or with, you know, the the different resources I mentioned earlier. I have no conflicts of interest.
0: Yes, thank you so much. And I wanted to ask as well, are there some things to consider with respect to what might happen with respect to when you refinance a loan if you find yourself in a situation where you 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 may no longer be able to repay it due to something like death or total disability things like that that you wanted to touch on as well
2: yeah absolutely so remember the federal government they have some benefits to it but they charge you a higher interest rate typically so you have that payment option, payment flexibility options you have the option for like forbearance like if like things are really really bad but, you know, another benefit of federal loans is that you have, if in the event of your death or your total disability, your loans are automatically discharged or you have to apply for it, but the they get forgiven if something were to happen to you, uh, if, uh, to a borrower like death or total disability. With private loans, it depends upon the terms that they issue. So check your own private loan, see what they say for what happens on... Uh, upon your death in, in the uh, unexpected, uh, if it were to occur, or total disability, and then uh, if the loans are discharged, if you have private loan refinancing, and if it's not forgiven, then you know what happens to it. Who who's on the hook for it? And this may impact how much life insurance you have to take out, or your disability insurance benefit, if if they're not forgiven, if on your death or your disability, because the last thing you want to to do is you know negatively impact someone else depending on what the terms were of the private loan when you took it out and, and so so it's something to definitely be keep in mind yes and not to
0: get too grim uh but i did think that that was an important question to ask so thank you so much for that information Bobek. Um, I think that overall does help outline some things to consider about consolidation and refinancing. Um, But that said, I think we do have time for one more topic. And uh, this comes straight from feedback that our new practitioners forum members shared with us during that Twitter chat that Brittany had mentioned, sponsored by the at ASHP underscore NPF account, which as a plug, of course, I would recommend that everybody follow. It's a lot of great information there and the chance to interact and affect podcasts like this. So the question is, uh, what are some things to consider regarding mortgages and student loans?
2: Yeah, so student loan balances and your monthly payments that you make towards your student loans get factored in. to so your ability to qualify for a mortgage, the amount of mortgage, and the interest rate that a bank will give you for your mortgage. So in general, mortgage lenders will look at what's known as your front and back end debt to income ratios. The front end, what that is defined as is it's your mortgage amount is divided by your monthly gross income. And generally, they want to make sure that that this ratio is less than 28 percent. So this is essentially making sure that you're not buying too much house than what you can afford. They also look at what's known as the back end debt to income ratio. And this not only includes your mortgage amount, but it also includes your other debt repayments in the numerator such as any credit card debt, car loans, as well as student loans. And generally you want the back end to be less than 36%. There are some variances to these like percentages 28 versus 36, uh, depending on the lender uh, and especially if you're pursuing like F- an FHA loan which can be more lenient. But I would imagine that From some of the listeners or many listeners, you know, between a mortgage and a student loan payment, it'd be very easy to hit these thresholds of 28 and 36%. So this is something that if you were to buy a home or looking to buy a home while you have student loans, this may impact the, the amount of mortgage you'll be able to be approved for. So you might have to buy a lower priced home. You may have to buy a starter home. Or you may even have to put down a bigger down payment so that your monthly amount is less than these thresholds your monthly mortgage payment is less than these thresholds or you have to pay off your other debts so that are in the numerator such as cars credit cards and you know you may even have to consider waiting to buy a home to make sure that you're you're in a better financial situation so what I would encourage listeners to do is look at your overall financial goals and plan why are you buying a home uh, when do you want to buy it in relation to your other goals, you know, do you want to wait until your loans are either forgiven or paid off, and then you buy the home? Um, or do you want to buy it as early as possible? Because you also want to keep in mind, you know, between your sterile loans and a mortgage, you also have to pay, save for retirement, which, you know, is a, uh, a something that is upon us to save for, because with housing, you have options, you can rent, Until you're ready, with student loans you have options because you can you can help you can change your repayment plans to find a monthly payment that makes sense for you. Over retirement, there are no loans for retirement. You have to save, and the time and the time to save is as early as possible because when you're younger, your money has more time to grow, and so you really want to you know make sure you're saving as as much as you can as early as you can. So again, you have to look at your overall picture.
0: Yes. And I think that provides an excellent segue towards our next podcast in this financial wellness series. And it's great timing because that is all the time that we have for today. So thank you so much, Bavik, for sharing your experiences and helpful information to consider about student loans and financial wellness. Uh, This really is something that I'm so excited to share with my new practitioners forum colleagues, as well as uh, any pseudo pharmacists that I know might benefit from this information. So thank you again so much.